Philosophy. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. What does it mean to believe? Religion is often associated with absolute faith, played out in a black and white view of the world. Recent years have seen a growth in fundamentalism in many faith traditions and an increase in hardline positions across politics and social discourse. Online discussion is full of people who are very clear about what they believe and often ferocious in the way they express those opinions. But belief need not be dogmatic. Negative theology is a form of theological thinking which embraces doubt and keeps open our sense of possibility and hope. Dr. David Neuheiser is a research fellow with the Institute of Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University. He's the editor of a recent edition of Modern Theology devoted to negative political theology and the author of Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology and the Future of Faith. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Deborah. Let's begin with the basics. What is negative theology? So negative theology is a deeply influential tradition of Christian thought that has analogs in Judaism, Islam, and other traditions that argues that, that discourse about God has to incorporate a really rigorous negativity. That's where the name comes from. In a Christian context, the seeds of the tradition are deeply woven in Christian scripture. So in the Torah, there's a famous prohibition against idolatry. In the New Testament, there's this insistence that God is invisible. In the second century, so at the very beginning of Christian history, theologians like uh, Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria adapted a vocabulary from Greek philosophy and uh, argued that God is incomprehensible, ungenerate. Uh, they used negative terms to refer to God in order to avoid the danger of idolatry. This gets developed over the next 13 or 14 centuries into a really rich tradition that uh, continues to speak affirmatively about God. It continues to make the sort of classic theological affirmations of Christian tradition while at the same time maintaining a really rigorous uh, self-critique. So the focus is on what we don't know rather than on what we do know? Uh, in negative theology, it's, it's really in its classic formulations. It's really about the logic of creation. So for Dionysius the Areopagite, who's the theologian I've worked on the most, uh, he writes in the 5th century, he argues that because God is the creator of everything, God is beyond everything. So the language that we have to, to use is drawn from creation, and so it falls short of the divine. But at the same time, according to Dionysius, everything that is points to God in a way because everything is from God. So for Dionysius, the, the fact that the world is created in his view requires both that, that Christians say lots of different things about God. It sets theological affirmation in motion while also requiring that all of these same affirmations get negated of God. So for Dionysius, unlike some other uh, versions of the tradition, it's not just about what we don't know, but it's about ho holding what Christians say, say about God loosely, uh, affirming and negating the same claims. So at a time when fundamentalism is growing and we seem to be seeing a shrinking of the center in many political and religious conversations, is negative theology a kind of opportunity to re-embrace doubt? I think it is, yeah. And so the thing I think is exciting about 
uh, about Dionysius, for instance, is that the fact that he says and unsays the same things about God seems quite weird on the face of it. Mm -hmm. It seems like a simple contradiction. But in my understanding, it functions as an ethical discipline. So for him, the point isn't to stop theological discourse, to force a sort of absolute silence. Instead, the point is uh, to give Christians a constant reminder that whatever they say about God is, is tenuous. It has to be subject to revision. And that's one of the reasons why I think this tradition has deep contemporary relevance. So as you said, fundamentalism is a problem. At the, on the other side, there's a secularism that would seek to stigmatize any religious commitment at all. I think negative theology represents an alternative. It shows that we don't have to choose between, between atheism and a sort of fundamentalist religious belief, uh, but that it's possible to have, to have a faith, a religious faith, that incorporates doubt, uncertainty, negativity within it. So what you're describing there is really negative theology as a kind of a, a third way. When it comes to the relationship between religion and politics, that seems to be particularly desirable. We have some people who think religion has moral authority when it comes to politics and others who think that religion should stay out of politics completely. Does this third way of negative theology offer a different option? It does, yeah, and that's that's the reason I find it uh, I, I find it politically significant in this moment. So, as you said, there are a lot of people who argue, both theorists but also people in the public sphere, that religion should just stay out of politics altogether. There are other other people, religious people, who argue that religion, especially perhaps Christian religion, has a sort of particular authority that it ought to run things. And I think both a sort of programmatic secularism of this kind and a, a sort of theocrat theocratic play for religious control over the public sphere are unsustainable in a pluralist society like Australia that includes lots of different people, some of whom are religious, some of whom aren't. And so I think one of the challenges politically for contemporary pluralist democracies is to find a way to incorporate religious people who come from a wide range of traditions uh, without, without sort of setting up a theocratic system that would include people who aren't believers. And I think this sort of the model of negative theology, this ethical discipline of uncertainty that I've described uh, shows that that's possible, that religious traditions can contribute in public without, um, without claiming an authority that they actually don't possess. So how would negative theology play out in the way religious leaders talk about political and social issues? I think one of the things that's hard is that some, some people feel instinctively that to admit doubt and uncertainty would weaken their claim to faith. And I think that's understandable because doubt and uncertainty can be genuinely uh, destabilizing. It can feel threatening. It can be a source of anxiety for people. One of the things that I think negative theology teaches is that it's possible to do two things at once. It's possible to affirm particular positions, whether they're theological or political, while acknowledging the vulnerability of those affirmations, while acknowledging that uh, whatever we affirm in whatever context, there's always some uncertainty to it. So I think in terms of how religious leaders intervene in the political sphere, I think negative theology offers a model whereby uh, religious communities can offer the, the tools that their traditions contain that might help address political issues that are current um, as, as sort of one uh, set of possibilities that anyone can draw on even if they aren't themselves members of the tradition in question. So what would the language around that look like? 
uh, around religious traditions, sort of offering mm. up uh, tools. I think one of the things that my own work tries to do when I reflect on the political significance of uh, especially Christian thought, which is my uh, sphere of expertise, is to first recognize that in in the West, in places like Australia or the U.S. where I come from, a lot of the political debates that remain with us are still framed in a vocabulary that has a religious genealogy. So I think in order to understand the problems that are with us, it's important to think about the history of, of Christian thought and Jewish thought and other other traditions because they shape the way that people continue to think about politics. And so one thing that religious traditions can offer, I think, is a sort of diagnosis to, to help people who might not be members of the tradition see uh, dimensions of the problems that uh, we're all facing that they might not have noticed. The second thing is that I think that this, the symbols and structures and practices of religious traditions are mobile in a way that both fundamentalists and secularists fail to appreciate. So that's one of the reasons that a lot of my work touches on uh, contemporary European philosophy. So many of the philosophers that I work on are atheists of a certain kind, but they engage in a really deep way with religious traditions because they, they realize that that's possible, that you don't have to be a card-carrying believer to find useful things in these traditions. And in fact, they, they find that thinking with these traditions helps them to think better about the ethical and political problems that they care about. So religious traditions become a resource rather than a source of authority? That's right, yeah. And I actually think that's how many religious people actually relate to their traditions. So people today, uh, almost no one in the West today exists in a sort of Christian monoculture. People move between different communities that they're a part of when they're at work, when they're socializing, community groups that they're a part of. And the religious community might be particularly important. It might be a central source of identity and meaning, but it's never the only thing. And so I think the way people live their Christianity today is marked by the other communities that they're a part of. And that's always been the case. So I, I mentioned the second century theologians, Justin uh, Martyr and Clement of Alexandria. They do what Christians have always done, which is to say they thought through the, the key claims of Christian thought using the cultural resources that were around them, which in their case was Platonic philosophy. And I think that that's one of the reasons that religious thinking about religious traditions is so exciting, because they e exemplify uh, the the sort of vibrant mobility of concepts and ideas, uh, which is one of the things that makes thinking exciting. The fundamentalist atheists, if you will, the Richard Dawkins and and so forth, would argue that there is simply no role for religion in the political sphere. We live in a world where many people are not of any religion and those who do have a religion have varied religions in a society like ours. What is the justification for bringing religion into politics at all? I think the first thing is that to exclude religion from politics is anti-democratic. The fact is that a society like Australia has lots of different people in it, some of whom are uh, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Jain, lots of other uh, traditions are represented. And it seems to me to go against the, the principles of a democratic society to say that some people can't bring 
some of the resources that they have to offer into the public sphere. Uh, I think that there's a danger. So I think uh, people who worry about the influence of, of religion on politics are responding to something real, which is that religious ideologies have sometimes in the past hardened into a sort of theocratic power that excludes other people. But that danger is not particular to religion. It's the case, I think, with, with lots of other ideologies. I think the, the thing that in, for people who care about democracy, the thing we ought to, to do is to resist ideology, not religion in particular. But as I've said, I think negative theology is one of many examples of the way in which religious traditions offer pretty powerful resources for resisting ideology that are internal to themselves. Religion has certainly had some negative effects on politics as a result of that uh, very strong ideology and continues to do so in many places. But it's also been a guiding light for many positive social movements. If we think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and anti-Nazi protests or Martin Luther King in the black civil rights movement um, or the liberation theology of Gustavo Gutierrez, removing religion from politics completely could lose the opportunity for these movements. But the challenge is how you retain the possibility for those positive effects without enabling religion to sink into that dominating way of directing politics. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, I think that's a tremendous problem. And I think that's a really important task, not just for religious interventions in politics, but I think for any politics. I think uh, political movements struggle to articulate particular proposals while maintaining a self-criticism that holds their proposals in play. Um, I think lots of politicians act as if that their proposals are clearly right, and sometimes they lead their supporters to believe that their proposals are certain, certain to succeed. But politics isn't like that, which is one of the reasons I think some people, especially maybe young people today, can despair of, of, of politics altogether because the, the sort of confidence that they were given shatters on the difficult uh, reality of, of governing a complicated social system. One of the things that I find so exciting about thinking about the intersection between politics and theology is that uh, I think that Christian tradition in particular, which I know best, offers a way to do these things. So I think, as I said uh, a moment ago, I think negative theology does two things at once, the affirmative and the critical. And that's the thing that I think any politics needs to do in order to, uh, to avoid the alternative between a sort of unjustified confidence and total despair. So that's the, you mentioned the special issue of modern theology that I've edited on negative political theology. That's what I think negative political theology offers, a form of affirmation that incorporates uh, negativity that underscores the need for uh, continual reevaluation and revision. It's complex and it contains inherently ambivalence and doubt. And those are experiences that many people find uncomfortable. Um, do you think that's why negative theology has become unfashionable? Uh, I think it's a difficult thing to do. So I think it's a demanding ethical discipline, which, uh, yeah, I think is, is something many people experience as a challenge. I think that the, the anxiety that some people have when they're faced with doubt is really understandable. But I actually think that in the last 20 or 30 years, lots of people, including the uh, atheist philosophers that I mentioned, 
have turned to negative theology because they think that there's something in that tradition that offers something that we need today. And we certainly do have a great deal of anxiety and despair in our society. We hear a great deal about um, anxiety disorders and how, in fact, they're particularly common among young people. Um, do you think maybe if we were able to introduce the sense of doubt and uncertainty as a more everyday part of our political and social discourse, that it would be some kind of balm for anxiety? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I I would like my work to do. So one of the reasons my work is framed in terms of hope is that I think anxiety is a constant threat. I think people feel the pull of it. And there's lots of good reasons to do that. I think the world is really very scary a lot of the time. I think uh, you know, people today worry about climate change. They worry about uh, the rise of right-wing populism. They also worry about the the people they love and whether they love them back. People, all of us are deeply vulnerable in lots of ways. I think it can be tempting in response to that vulnerability to pretend like it's not there. And I think that's one of the reasons that some people turn to a sort of purifying dogmatism, whether it's of the fundamentalist religious sort or the secularism that would exclude religion. Those approaches have the uh, apparent advantage of simplifying and purifying. But the fact is things are complicated. And I think people feel that uh, in, inside themselves all of the time. So I think the challenge both to live healthily as an individual but also to have a healthy politics is to find a way to acknowledge the anxiety and the vulnerability while pressing forward anyway. And that's the thing that I think hope is meant to do. So I think I think of hope as as being a way to acknowledge the way that things are actually hard but to keep going, to persist. And that brings us very nicely to your new book, uh, which is called Hope in a Secular Age, and uses both the tradition of negative theology and the modern theory of deconstructionism to argue against dogmatism and despair. How does negative theology help us hope? I think the, the, the way in which negative theology is about hope, I think, is that, as I've described, I think it holds the affirmative and the negative together which is one of the things that I think the language of hope does. So when, when someone says in an everyday context, I hope for such and such, they're acknowledging already that they're not sure whether it's going to happen, but it's something that they want to happen, but they're not sure whether it will actually come to fruition. And so there's an affirmation that's there in that statement, uh, but also an acknowledgement that it's fragile somehow. And this is the thing, as I've said, I think is hard to do to acknowledge the uncertainty, but to continue with the affirmation. Negative theology off offers a model for doing that. It shows that it's possible. So not not everyone listening to this podcast will want to accept the theological metaphysics that someone like Dionysius the Areopagite uh, articulated. But I think the form of his thought, the way in which he holds together the affirmative and the negative, is actually something that uh, is... Is, could be useful for anyone regardless of their own commitments. And it's one of the reasons. So you mentioned deconstruction. Deconstruction is associated with the work of Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher who died about 15 years ago. And Derrida was an atheist of a certain kind. He had a Jewish background. But he thought about negative theology throughout his career, even from when he was a, um, a high school student, actually. He was preoccupied with this tradition um, all, the way, all the way until his death. And I think this thing that I've described is the reason that he felt an affinity with it. So even though he wasn't 
um, a, a Christian Neoplatonist. He felt like this this combination of affirmation and critique uh, models something that's really important for politics, but also for ethical life in the present. So negation and deconstruction both have these similarities in terms of the way they deal with what is believed or true or real and what is possible and maybe not going to happen. Yeah, so I think that's the thing. So Derrida, one of the key concepts for Derrida is the messianic, which is another religious category that he borrows in order to think about what democracy means. And so I think like negative theology, his his political thought is oriented towards what does not yet exist. It has this sort of future momentum. And that's the reason that it's inflected by uncertainty in a really deep way. So I think for both both for Derrida and also for negative theology, this negativity that's so obvious about their thought is is oriented towards an affirmation that is directed towards the future. It's oriented towards uh, something that is desired but hasn't yet come into being. And so negative theology as a phrase and deconstruction sound as if it's mainly about negativity. But actually in both cases, I think the key structure is a negativity that is linked in a really deep way with a certain kind of affirmation, which I understand as a hopeful affirmation. So despite sounding like it's a pessimistic way of looking at the world, it's actually quite an optimistic and open way of approaching life. Yeah, I, optimism is a word uh, that I'm a little uncomfortable with because a lot of people try to distinguish optimism and hope. But I would say at least it's a hopeful orientation. Uh, so even if – so I think for the, the vision of hope that I think Derrida and Dionysius the Arabogite share, I think it allows someone to be quite pessimistic, to think that what one desires is actually unlikely or maybe even impossible to happen. But to maintain a hope that incorporates this kind of pessimism within it, to hold the desire – and to keep pressing forward, uh, even if it doesn't seem likely to come to fruition. That sounds a little unhealthy to hang on to a hope that is impossible, the hope that, I don't know, someone you love who's died is going to be reincarnated. That is doesn't sound like a healthy kind of hope to me. Well, I think people don't always do what's healthy. So I think this kind of hope, even though sometimes sometimes I think it's good for people, sometimes it's not, I don't mean to recommend it in every case. Uh, but I think it represents a really important human capacity that is something that's required if, if, uh, if we're going to commit to loving another person or if we're going to commit to a political project that we're not sure is the right one or we're not sure it's going to succeed or if we're going to commit to uh, a religious tradition. In each of those cases, I think, the personal, personal love, politics, religious faith, we don't know whether it's going to work out. And so the hope can hurt us in the end. But I think the possibility of maintaining these commitments that are, that are genuinely dangerous is a really important dimension of human life. And I think life would be poor without it. An important dimension of human life because it enriches us? Well, it's not, I think it's not always good for the person who hopes or the person who loves. Some of the, sometimes the people that we love hurt us. So I wouldn't say that it's always a good thing to love another person. Uh, it's dangerous. But I think the capacity for love, the capacity to stretch beyond oneself, the capacity to hope for something that one might not even be able to fully imagine, I think that those 
are ways of of opening human life to something beyond what's already in front of us. And I think that sort of stretching forth into the future is a really important part of what it means to be human. And do you think that by bringing together those ideas that you've found in uh, Christian negative theology and in uh, secular deconstructionism, you can go some way to overcoming the gulf that seems to be growing between religious and secular thinking? So that's one of the key claims of my book, Hope in a Secular Age. A lot of people, both philosophers and theologians, argue that religious hope is qualitatively different from secular hope. They suggest that Christians claim a kind of confidence or certainty about the future that atheists can't have. I think that's a mistake. I think the examples of deconstruction and negative theology show that hope is always vulnerable and always uncertain, whether it's directed towards God or the advent of a justice to come. And I think if it's the case that Derrida and Dionysius share a hope that's uncertain and vulnerable, that suggests that the secular and the religious have more in common than some people sometimes assume. Well, that at least is a very hopeful thought on which to end our conversation. Dr. David Neuheiser, thank you for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks too to Trey Karunaratna, one of our talented media production students at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy.